This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. The month of August marks one year since Datuk Sri Ismail Sabri ascended to the post of Prime Minister. And during this period, there's been furious speculation over the potential timing of the 15th general election, which must be held by September of next year. With Barikata National reportedly threatening to withdraw support from the government over unkept promises, could GE15 happen sooner rather than later? Joining me today to help decipher the political signals is Shannon Teo, Malaysia Bureau Chief for the Straits Times Singapore. Shannon, good morning. Thanks very much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me, Shazana. Talk of GE15 has been rife since Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin of Bersatu stepped down as uh, Prime Minister last year and an UMNO leader returned to the role in the form of Datuk Sri Ismail Sabri. Now, the thinking by some is that UMNO should secure the mandate to rule from the electorate. And there was a lot of chatter about dissolving parliament after Barisan National's victories in the Malacca and Johor state elections. Why do you think GE15 hasn't been called yet? I think the very basic to consider here is that the Prime Minister doesn't feel he's ready for a general election. There's been a lot of talk about you know having a general election uh, immediately after uh, Barisan National swept Johor in March. When that didn't happen then, or after the uh, MOU or CSA with Pakatan Harapan, when, when the clause would dissolve, uh, not to dissolve Parliament by July 31st, and people say it would happen right after that. Uh, we are in this period of right mm-hmm. after that, right now. Uh, it's, it's, you know, um, the first few days of August. But again, you're not hearing any kind of real uh, chatter about the Prime Minister dissolving Parliament. Instead, it's gone on record to talk about still having to, um, you know, implement more reforms. And he's not done with the reforms. And in fact, uh, he's saying that even his party desires more reforms to happen, such as regulating political funding. Uh, it's shocking, I know I'm no one to regulate political funding, but that's what the Prime Minister is saying. All the signals he's giving is that he's not ready uh, to call for an election. Um, he, I think two or three months ago, he spoke about rising prices, so I'm not ready to call an election. And um, you know, we know according to our law, our constitution, it is up to the Prime Minister to advise uh, the King on on solution of Parliament. So that's, that's really the basic bottom line. The Prime Minister doesn't want to do it yet. And I think the Prime Minister is in quite a unique position in that Ismail Sabri isn't the leader of UMNO, which has traditionally been Prime Minister. He is number three within UMNO. He's a vice president. And above him, there is, of course, Datuk Sri Zaid uh, Hamidi. And also there is um, Datuk Muhammad Hassan. Um, what does this mean in terms of the power play within UMNO? Yeah, this is the first time that such a thing has happened where the, the Prime Minister is not a party leader. It, it does create this kind of tension between uh, what the Prime Minister wants and what his party wants. Because in the past, what the Prime Minister wants is exactly what the party wants because he's the president and he represents the party. In this case, he doesn't. And it's pretty clear that the president of his party and the leaders aligned to the president want an election to happen as soon as possible. And of course, we know they cite um, this momentum they've been getting from uh, winning all these state elections. And the fact that the the opposition, the other coalitions are pretty much in a mess right now. So they feel that they should strike while the iron is hot. Of course, it's taking a a lot of getting used to 
both for Malaysians and people in UMNO. This idea that when the president or when the party makes a decision is different from when the government makes a decision. And in this case, the law really is on Ismail Sabri's side. Mm. Um, whatever is the opinion of the party, he is able to say that, well, the machinery of the government with all the information that we have, that we've gathered from the grassroots when we roll out our programs, is that, you know, in, in a way of manner of speaking, the ground isn't sweet enough yet for an election. So this does create some tension within the party. There's this disagreement. Uh, but they have also kind of created new structures to, to deal with this. Previously, Amno decisions were all made by the Supreme Council. Right now, they've got a structure called the, the, the Big Five or the Top Five. I think it's been referred to, uh, you know, in, in various ways, but it does refer to the top five leaders. As you mentioned, the presidents are hit, the deputy president, uh, Muhammad Hassan, and the three vice presidents, uh, which of course includes the prime minister himself. And they are supposed to sit in a little council around a campfire of sorts and, and decide what's best to go forward, right? Uh, without having to deal with uh, uh, too many voices and too much noise from outside this, 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 the top of the pyramid, as it were. And there's another structure now that we have, which is a kind of a consultative council between um, the cabinet and the party. So um, there is someone from the party, there's a team from the party and there's a team from the government who also sit down and look at issues uh, from a political lens uh, about, so how do we deal with uh, cost of living? How do we deal with uh, this issue or that issue? Mm. And so they discuss these issues together. So this is one of the things that has cropped up because of the situation that we're in where Ismail Sabri is uh, the vice president, but he's also the prime minister. So there is a, a kind of a consultation going on between party and government and it's happening in a very structured way. Um, and to an extent, whatever you think of AMNO, AMNO has a kind of uh, a very long institutional memory. Uh, they're very entrenched. They're, they're very established. So um, on the one hand, we talk about and we write about, it makes for very good copy to talk about um, the civil war in Amno, the, the schism and the, and, the, and the splits and so on and so forth. But this is a party that knows that their best chance of winning a general election is by presenting a united front. So no matter how much the leaders there might like or dislike each other or might have very opposing agendas, they know the best way to win is to win together. Mm. And speaking of winning together, we did see uh, over the weekend reports that Barikatan National is threatening to withdraw support from the Ismail Sabri government. What do you think is happening on this front? And is this one of those forces that would unite the factions within UMNO if knowing that um, they, they have this sort of opposition from allies, essentially? Yeah, um, I think yeah, that, that does come into the picture. Um, this idea that Prakata National is uh, trying to, you know, uh, get its way, trying to uh, push its weight around, uh, especially Basatu, I think very specifically, not really Prakatan, but very much Basatu, who are unhappy with uh, Ismail for ostensibly not living up to his promise. Now, this supposed agreement about uh, certain cabinet positions, about the role of deputy prime minister, so on and so forth, no one knows whether it really exists whether it was just a verbal agreement or whether it's on a best effort basis, <laughs> what is this agreement? No one really has outlined it very firmly, 
But I mean, but the point being that that Basatu is unhappy, and uh, Isma Sabri seems doesn't seem keen to give in. I think he too realizes that in terms of what kind of leverage does Basatu actually have over him, and the answer is probably not much because the best they can do is withdraw support for his government, and the government may topple. But then we go into an election in which Basatu and Prikata Nasional themselves are not really very prepared for. So this again plays into Amno's hands. Um, I think Isma Sabri is starting to realize that outside of Barisan National, no one else really wants an election to happen right now. So anyone trying to threaten not to support him, um, it's, it does sound like a lot of posturing, a lot of uh, uh, hot air even perhaps. They don't really have much of a choice but to go with keeping him in power until such a point where they are ready to face an election and, well, they've got a, about a year to get ready. So um, there isn't really much point of, of well, making a point and, and basically saying, oh, you know, we are not going to support you and we have our principles, so on and so forth. Um, and the election happening, happening a year earlier and then you're not ready for it. If you just grit your teeth uh, for another three, six, nine months, whatever it is, you get that time to prepare. Yeah. I mean, you've been all out at sea over the last two state elections. Uh, and I think buying time, politically speaking, is a far more important consideration for Perikatan mm. uh, and for Pakatan Harapan. I'm speaking to Shannon Teo, Malaysia Bureau Chief for the Straits Times Singapore. We'll continue the conversation after the break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar and today I'm speaking to Shannon Teo, Malaysia Bureau Chief for The Straits Times Singapore, on the GE15 timeline and murmurings in the political landscape. A lot of things to watch on the UMNO front. Another curious development which you've covered in your articles is really the rise of new leadership within UMNO. And I think one of the um, figures being watched closely is uh, the current finance minister, Datuk Sri Tengku Zafrul Aziz, who is um, starting to give indications that he will be running in the next general election. Walk me through this story. What is your reading of what's happening with Tengku Zafrul in UMNO? Well, I, I think the, the speculation of him that he will run in Kuala Selangor has been uh, gaining momentum over the past couple of months, especially when the finance ministry unprecedentedly, I think it was an unheard of move. They, they adopted Kuala Selangor under the, the finance ministry. And it was a move that was widely criticized at that point. And uh, Tengku Zafros had to kind of defend the move and also insist that it doesn't mean that they're going to play favorites or anything. Uh, we did find out in advance, and so it was a small little exclusive for the Straits Times that he was going to be named Slango BN Treasurer uh, at convention. Uh, and so we had used that as a news pack to talk about this, uh, well, I don't know if you would say political debut. It would be depend on, on how you that it is becoming a senator and a finance minister, a political debut, or is taking up actual office in a political party uh, your political debut. But anyway, this first time he's taking up political office in a party. And um, what was peculiar about that is everyone thought of Tengku Zafrul as a Basatu appointee, right? Uh, he, he got the cabinet back in, in uh, when, when Mohidin took over after the Sheraton move in 2020. Uh, and he was retained by Ismail Sabri after that. But the, the entire view was that 
he falls under the bersatu quota, so to speak. And and so right now, this bersatu being upset with with Ismail Sabri over how many cabinet members so on and so forth. I wonder if they're counting Teku Zafrul as not one of them anymore and, and maybe Ismail Sabri owes them two positions, three positions instead. I think he's uh, gone on CNN to say that the reason why uh, he's joined politics is because as a senator, he can only remain as finance minister for up to six years. But he feels that the job of uh, fiscal reform, so on and so forth, is going to take longer. So he does have uh, to take a parliamentary seat if he wants to do this work. So he's trying to, to couch his potential candidacy. And I think it's pretty much implied that he's confirming it, you know, um, because he wants to do this work, not because he wants to join Amno specifically or ensure that Amno is in power. It is probably because he sees Amno as the best platform for him to win a seat and therefore then continue to uh, do this work that he wants to do in the finance ministry. It's interesting that um, Tunku Zafrul is being put in the position of spearheading the Barisa National Amno campaign in Selangor, given that Selangor was lost over to the opposition since 2008. Could this be a, a poison chalice for Tunku Zafrul in the end? This is not going to be a cakewalk. It's not a slam dunk for Amno to win Kuala Selangor. Obviously, they lost Kuala Selangor in the, in the last uh, general election. Uh, Selangor and Penang, I guess, uh, what you might call bastions for Pakatan Harapan. But I suppose Zafo wanting to join Amno and be a candidate to an extent, being a parachute candidate, um, you, you can't be getting a very comfortable seat somewhere. You can't be getting, for example, Pekan. Uh, or, or any other kind of sure seat. You have to work and win your seat. That's what that's the message to him, right? So you can stand on an Amno ticket, but you have to do something for us. You have to give us some gains, right? Either by winning your own seat or also that because it will it will cause some kind of wave in Selango. And the idea here being that um, Selango voters might pay a bit more attention to your own qualifications as a leader, um, your, your resume, right? Whether you're a professional or not, um, your track record, so on and so forth. And um, for better or for worse, probably for worse, I'm not track record of leaders in Selangor hasn't been great. There's been a, quite a fair list of leaders who've been caught for, for some kind of dodgy deals or even being convicted of corruption themselves. Ever since they lost in the state in 2008, the leaders you've seen in Selangor have kind of fallen short of being uh, very charismatic. They, they, it's kind of a tired leadership in Slango, which is strange being that it's the, the richest state. Some might say it's the most important state. Um, but yet, um, I struggle to name an AMRO leader in Slango who, has, who is someone you might say that, yeah, you know, people can get behind this guy. Um, and... I suppose by, by running Tunku Zafu there, they're hoping to change that image of Slango, Amno and, and, and BN as well as being a tired old horse that has given up the, the battle before it's even begun. Voters want to vote for winners. They want to vote for someone who's viable. And so with Tunku Zafu being there, and I think that's why the conversation about federal or state scene, and, and he may even run both, is, is pretty important because if he runs for a state seat, then people will believe that he could be their chief minister candidate and it'll be worth voting voting for Slango or well, state assembly seats as well. 
Although to be clear, none of this is confirmed per se, but these are all developments that are well worth watching. And whether Datuk Sri Tengku Zapul can be that rejuvenating factor for UMNO in Selangor would be one of the highlights of the next general election whenever it may come. Um, but while we have the uh, parties, the political parties doing their machinations and preparations, we do have the other side, which is voters. And we know that with Undi 18 coming to, into effect, there's a whole host of new voters entering the electorate. Um, there have been some curious surveys which show that Muslim Malay parties may not have the natural-born support that they expect. Um, what's going on in that front? This was another report we did about a survey done by Merdeka Centre earlier this year. First-time voters. For all these first-time voters, uh, and of course we know that there's a huge incoming uh, cohort because of Udila um, only four out of ten say that they are sure to vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, basically, four out of ten said maybe. Uh, another two out of ten said they were very unlikely to vote. So there's a huge portion of voters here, probably numbering into over a million young Muslim voters who aren't yet convinced that we should vote or who to vote for. And this is uh, a, a, a very influential vote bank because if they do vote in uh, Muslim majority constituents, constituencies, for example. Those constituencies uh, tend to have fewer voters, the rural constituencies, so their voting power is much higher than, say, an urban voter. And whichever party can kind of energize them, whichever leader, in fact, apparently they pay more attention to leadership rather than uh, parties um, because they haven't been, they haven't bought into a brand yet, right? Uh, Whichever leader can kind of energize these voters, um, you could swing quite a fair number of seats and given the low turnout uh, during the state elections, even though we know that Barisan National swept to two-thirds victories, even three-quarters in, in Malacca, just moving the needle by three or four percentage points uh, towards another party can have huge ramifications for the results. So this is a space that needs to be watched. Uh, whether they, anyone can actually energize them is, is a big question. They might end up thinking, nah, none of you. Or... Recent developments, you know, you have Muda, obviously a very clear candidate for, for Muslim youth voters. Rafizi is back in the picture. You know, he seems to have some good ideas. And there is no denying that, you know, bringing in people like Tengku Zafar, he's not necessarily young, but he probably appeals to younger voters. It's more uh, connected with them, yeah, mm. with, with them than, say, someone like Zahir Amidi. No offense to him, but... Um, and what kind of candidates are going to run? I mean, in the last two state elections in Malacca and, and Johor, most of the parties were trying to run younger candidates. In the last uh, two state elections, we saw a large number of young voters. And we know now the, the Johor Menteri Bersa is a pretty young chap himself. Mm. In terms of the issues that these young Malay Muslims um, prioritise, was there anything in the findings that maybe surprised you as to what they felt was more important to them? Well, when the question was asked, so what is your biggest concerns? What is your biggest priorities to you? None of this race or religion stuff uh, was very high up in the in the top brackets. It was jobs, number one. Um, and I think it was it's a very surprisingly environment, number two, and corruption, number three. Uh, and the first time you see any kind of uh, race or a kind of identity politics stuff is I think like the fifth highest or sixth highest consideration. So whether they're Muslim or not, the youth are all concerned about the same thing, I think, across the board. 
their livelihoods and, and making a, a, a place for themselves in this world. And, and they are actually very concerned about climate change and environment. I think they feel that maybe the, the older generation feels that I'll die before, for, before Malaysia goes underwater, right? But for, for a younger generation, they do believe that something catastrophic is going to happen in their lifetime. So these are issues that it appears as if these are the issues that they are going to look at more closely during an election rather than just um, the usual banging that, that, you know, on the on the race card or the religious card. I'm going to end on this question, Shannon. Um, GE15, when do you think we'll see GE15 being called? <laughs> what are the dates that are being bandied about? What, you know, what should we be keeping an eye on? Well, definitely the next one year, Shazana. I'm not going to say that any window is out of the picture, but if I had to bet on whether it's this year or next year, I'll say next year. And in previous conversations, when, when I answer the question a bit more flippantly, I say full term. Uh, and I think that is as likely a window as any other window. All right, Shannon, thank you very much for sharing your insights. And we will catch up as developments unfold. Uh, a lot of things to watch moving forward in the next year, perhaps. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. <laughs> Thanks, Rosanna. I've been speaking to Shannon Teo, Malaysia Bureau Chief for The Straits Times, Singapore. This has been Pressing Matters on The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.